food is emotive, that's the difference we talked about. It's the human bit. People talk about experiential. Experiential is human beings being involved somewhere in the transaction. Hello and welcome to the Fine Food Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. This is a bit of a special episode. It's it's quite a bit longer. It's much more in-depth. And it was a real privilege a few weeks ago to be sat in the boardroom at Fortnum and Mason's uh, in no little way because it was 39 degrees outside. I don't know if you remember that. 39 degrees outside in an air-conditioned room. So it was, uh, it was a joy. But we sat at Fortnum and Mason's. I was joined by um, Michael Lane, who is the co-producer of this podcast, but also the editor of Fine Food Digest, and John Farrand, who is the MD of the Guild of Fine Food. And joining us three were five luminaries from the world of fine food retail. Michael was chairing the meeting, and the first question he posed was, what were you doing 20 years ago? The first voice you'll hear is Jenny Allen from Bailey & Sage. I had one shop in Wimbledon, and it was nearly two years old. So, yeah, so I'd... um... In 97, I left Cullen's, I'd been the MD of Cullen's, and I knew I wanted to open something that was more pure food than Cullen's. Cullen's was, you know, um, the yuppies convenience store, but it sold um, health and beauty, it sold cleaning products, and um, I I, I even had that awful bread, sun-blessed bread, and I knew I wanted to open something that was more about pure food. So um, Cullen's got sold to Europa, and I knew a site in Wimbledon had been on the market. Um, so I bought it, I got it, refitted it um, in nine, little refit well, in 97, and it became sort of a deli specialty store. And I was thinking as I was coming here this morning, you know, we are still using some of those supplies we started with 20 years ago. I think the biggest change for us is it's much fresher now. I mean, we would still say we sell loads of produce, deli counter, loads of cheeses, wine, but but within that the refinement of the range has become substantially different. Um, And yeah, I think I'm pleased to say that we are still using some of the supplies from 20 years ago. Next up is Claire Jackson from Slate Cheese Shops. They have a shop in Aldborough and Southwold on the Suffolk coast and they in fact won Best Newcomer at the Guild of Fine Food Shop Awards this year. Two decades ago, I just left university and I was an auditor. So I was at one of the big accounting firms doing nothing to do with food and uh, eating a lot of sandwiches from places like Bread at that time. <laughs> now we hear from Rob Copley from Farmer Copley's in Pontefract, uh, award winning uh, farm shop. Uh, he's also the chairman of the Farm Retail Association, which has uh, 280 farm shops as members. We've been open 16 years, but we did do two years before that mm. trialling with turkeys and Christmas trees. But 20 years ago, I was a cattle nutritionist in Yorkshire, going around telling farmers what mm. to feed the cows. Uh, I was an agronomist. It was my dad's farm, and he was ready for retiring. And that's the point where we decided what we was going to do with the farm. So we sort of diversified 18 years ago. But literally 20 years ago, driving around selling farmers' cattle feed. Mm. It's quite a difference, really. <coughs> Still selling stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we hear from Simon Thompson, uh, head of retail and hospitality at Fortnum and Masons. He's from a restaurant background, and he took over retail at Fortnum and Masons three years ago. Gosh, so I was um, cutting my teeth in restaurants twenty years ago um, in London. I kind of fell into restaurants, as probably a lot of people do, um, and then yeah. We're starting to probably starting to get into well I was in management then and um, really start my my journey in food I was lucky enough as a child to have parents that took me to um, the northeast 
took me to good sort of good restaurants and when we went on holiday we went to restaurants so I think I'd been I'd been exposed to restaurants and, and sort of my mum was an excellent cook you know I remember my grand taking me in the butchers and the butcher would cut off the rind and hand it to me and I'd be sitting sucking on the rind while she was making the order and would sort of remember looking into that counter at all the different produce uh, which you know funny enough I do now with my daughters you know and they're quite keen to spot the rabbit or spot the quail and stuff as opposed to you know, things might be under, under plastic. So, yeah, restaurants, I don't know, it kind of, I guess the food journey came secondary. I was, I felt I would kind of gone into an industry where I was good with people. I was good with the customers, I was good at leading the team. I needed a career, it was the right time in my life and I embraced it and the kind of the food, I guess I got in probably, from what I would say, I was in Signature Restaurants, which was the sister's company to the Ivy Group. You know, this is when obviously the Ivy Group had sort of revolutionized London restaurants and really started to, you know, people started going out and dining and, and those kind of things. So I think it was that, you know, that movement and all of a sudden we were going to restaurants and you, part of your working life was to go and check out the new restaurant and you were doing tastings at work and yeah, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, it just seemed normal in restaurants that food provenance was great, f fresh food was coming in daily. And I guess, yeah, you know, it's kind of, it's gone on from then, but yeah, really sort of just starting out really, I'd say. And now we meet Rebecca Hemsley who is Head of Food Service and Hospitality Operations at Waitrose. Rebecca's been at Waitrose for almost four years, but prior to that she was 13 years as Head of Commercial Operations at Pret-a-Manger. And in fact, the conversation moves on via Pret-a-Manger to the change in grab-and-go culture. At Pret, the, the big change we saw was the, that the speed of service, actually. Um, we thought we were pretty fast and we weren't fast enough. So we were, when I joined Pratt, I think there were about 100 branches, there's about 400 now. The biggest change I saw, probably middle of my time there, was into hot food away from cold food, and people demanding more hot food at lunchtime, whereas previously a sandwich and a, a sort of, you know, kind of drink was, was what they had. They definitely wanted to move more into hot food. Um, and it's, it was interesting on the Strand this morning, one of the Pratt shops has got its hot cabinet shut, maybe out of order, maybe just be not being used, because there was, probably four, five, six weeks of the year where we couldn't sell hot food at lunchtime. The rest of the year is our biggest area, above sandwiches. And the problem for Pret was, was the sandwich business. Mm. The, the most important thing for a Pret customer was the location. It had to be the closest possible location mm. to their place of work or to a transport hub. They secondly wanted service, so quality and speed of service. And the third thing was the food, mm. which for a business that's known for food, was, was quite weird, you know, so we had to work more on the speed and the, the sort of quality of, of the partner than, than we had to sort of sweat about what we were, what we were putting it on the shelves. And Quickly. the breakfast offer has massively grown in that I think originally breakfast wasn't that big a deal and, and the breakfast market, certainly within the M25, is much greater than it ever was. And the coffee revolution probably, yeah, did, you know. Absolutely. That, uh, yeah. We don't yeah. start our day without popping into a shop now, which probably we never yeah. used to, you know. A quick anecdote, 30 years ago, I'd been working in London Covent Garden, there was a lovely sandwich shop which had this ginormous menu and you could pick anything you wanted, nothing was made in advance, the queue was at the door, you know, and I thought that was a brilliant idea and I'd gone home on a six month sort of sabbatical back up to the northeast, and I thought I'm going to do a sandwich round. So I did, I, I cheated, I sort of got their menu and I basically did a rebrand of it and I didn't, wouldn't have a, didn't have bricks and mortar store, I didn't have any money, but I thought I'd just drop them into all the office blocks in the town centre and sort of, and I did. but. What I hadn't done is trimmed the menu down. 
And I went out and bought what I thought would be the staples every day, you know what I mean? And every single day there was someone would ring up and say, but have you got the, and I'd be like, <gasps> and I'd be dashing back out to wherever, I, and I, it ran me ragged. And eventually I thought, yeah, I probably should have had eight well, sandwiches. you had too much choice. I must have had 30 sandwiches on this menu yeah. with probably 60 ingredients. And it was me with my girlfriend in a kitchen trying to, um, trying to do this business. And it was startling, but you know, it was just I couldn't afford the amount of staff to prep all these different things, mm. and it was, and then delivering it was it was a, it was a that was a steep learning curve. Now I think I was nineteen. Next up, and I think a really important topic of conversation in in fine food retail is provenance. Uh, we hear from Rob Copley. Customers coming through our doors, yeah, I think they're more naturally more affluent customers anyway. But uh, they're coming for the taste and the experience. It, it's As soon as you walk in our shop, it automatically tastes better before they've even walked up to the butchers. Mm. And then there's the theatre of the butcher there. But uh, it's so going back to natural food, walking on a farm to buy your food. Why, why have farm shops become such a thing? There's been a lot of farm shops about for sort of 40 years. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's Tully's down at South, there's Essington, uh, Millets at Oxford. They've all been about, but farm shops really took off about 20 years ago mainly because the government brought out the RDPE grants. It's uh, the, the wanted farmers to diversify and they did a lot of match funding. So suddenly farmers could realise I can get half of this shop paid for. And that's why 20 years ago there was a big influx of farm shops. But uh, I, I think there's, there's almost a category within a category with farm shops. Mm -hmm. You've got the, will, will you pick, pick your own once upon a time? Or? No, we've grown into pick your own okay. as an extra experience. I mean, there's, there's the sort of authority in inverted commas, proper farm shop mm. that a farmer has diversified, got the good grants, I remember that happening and you're right, yeah. it sort of exploded. But we've now got effectively your food hall downstairs lifted yeah. and plonked in a field or at, sometimes in an industrial estate on the edge of a town mm. and that's a farm shop. And they're not, they're not farm shops, they're food halls in fields yeah. in a way. And the, the offer is often a, very much a deli offer I know your yep. case, you're a farm yep. shop offer, but some of them are very sort of, the product's very deli focused. But I think, aren't they, I mean, I would say, it's trust in the protein for me. I think we all, you know, yeah. you're buying, when you you know, you're buying meat from a supermarket as everybody did. And I think, you know, at some point, for me, it's about shortening. It's like, you know, around the corner for me, there's a skill in the basketball court and every Sunday there's a food market there and you can buy sausages, bacon, your joint for lunch, you know, your, but then also the deli elements, which I think are just smart retailing. It's that kind of way, if you're here, you may as well get these. But, but to your point about it tasting better, it's that shortening of the supply chain and it's that trust, you know, you want to kind of, you know, and I think you almost want to touch and feel it. The farmer is a very trusted person at yes. the moment. I mean, if you look at politicians, nobody trusts politicians at the moment. <laughs> but farmers, they're almost heroes at the moment. And it's, it's people have got a lot of trust when they walk in that door that you're doing the job right. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that also the farming industry was going through, because of the challenges, there's probably, you know, with the grants that are coming along, but also it's a good news story. Yeah, you know, and fa go, well, farmers have worked. I can help that, I can interact yeah. with that, and I'm getting something from it. You know, yeah, we, we did have a bad run with sort of foot and mouth and yeah, uh, CJD, and there's been a lot of work done to put trust back in yeah. the farming. And it, you know, it's paying off, or it's yeah. paid off in the last 10 years. It's uh, The trust is back in British farming. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right about shortening the, the supply chain. We mm. find uh, people coming into our shop like to understand which are the local products and those that we buy directly from the cheese makers themselves rather than coming through yeah. the distributor and so and we try and visit 
those farmers or the cheesemakers and us talking about that brings the cheese alive mm. and people really um, tap into that yeah. and they want to know that that's come directly from the cheese vat where it's been made. Uh, and people really are asking that, are they? I find that incredibly interesting that they want you to be that conduit between the maker and them. And they sort of say things like, do you get that directly from the farm? So we get asked a lot where we, think, how yeah. we get our cheeses. I mean, I bang um, on about things like that, but it's no, nice to know it happens no, in the real absolutely. world. Absolutely. <laughs> People ask us where, I mean, you asked me even this morning when we arrived, where, yeah. where do we source our cheeses from? So yeah. it's definitely a question that gets asked. And it's also something that we volunteer, you know, if it's a farm that we've been to, then that's always, you know, something that we jump in and say mm. and, uh, and share. Yeah. I, I think they are interested. I mean, yeah. we, we are using... Um, some of our suppliers to do training and, and when I say supplier I mean cheesemakers mm. and then sometimes we will have them come into one of our larger shops and, and do a tasting with customers mm. of their That's cheese so we do. So we do by the cheese counter and we do tasting from the store to talk as well. to the person yeah. who has actually you know yeah. I think customers love the backstory yeah, yeah. yeah really are. really really love the backstory yeah, yeah. that's think. quite recent don't you think the for, for, for the, not the matter, I don't mean the masses, but for a lot of people, that's quite recent. I think Last we've five always to had, seven I mean, years. We're quite, I'm quite fussy about what suppliers will come and do tastings. I like this, the producer to come and do it, not them farm it out to someone because they're often not very good. How interested are your customers at Waitrose in, in problems? Our customers are absolutely focused on that, and, and whether it's from a quality of the product angle or whether, from, whether it's from a sustainability angle. They absolutely want to know where that product came from, and we, we, you know, pride ourselves on quite a tight supply base. Actually, certainly around our, our meat products, um, they don't supply other people. Mm. You know, so people, our customers are confident that, that you know we we do know the farmers. We send our butchers up to the the sort of processing area to to see the whole process. Um, you know, and, and some love it and some hate it for sure. But but we want them to know how that animal was treated what happened to it, where it came from, where it grew up, and how the meat was then treated through that, that process to come into to the branch in the sort of um, state that it comes in. And it gives the, the partner the respect for the product, and it also gives them the knowledge and the passion to talk about it with customers. Um, and and I, you know, customers come to our counters, I guess in the same way that they'd come to your counters, you know, all of your counters, that. They, they come for the person standing there, not, they don't come to Waitrose, they come to talk to that butcher who sells them their, 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 their beef, you know, for, for their Sunday roast. They want to talk to him or her, they don't, they're not coming for the Waitrose brand, they're coming for that person. I think it's an interesting thing actually that uh, creating this speciality sort of retail experience does put much more emphasis on the quality of your staff and the team that you have. You can't just, you can't just have somebody yeah. there who yeah. is cutting a piece of cheese and wrapping yeah. it. It's all about that, yeah. that yeah. speaking yeah. and as you say, like creating the relationship. <coughs> yeah. And um, it means they have to be well trained, they have yeah. to be knowledgeable, but also just a very friendly. sort of friendly, enthusiastic, yeah. cheerful person so that they can yeah. build that. Yeah. Uh, generally, like you're exposed to the supply chain. You know, the best wines, are, it, the, my favourite wines are still the wines that I visited. You know, I've had a chance to do a few wine trips over the years and they still carry with me. It's because I stayed, stood in the terroir and picked the grape, I tasted mm. it with the guy who told me about it and it still tastes that good now. It's that, that sort of palate lingers with me as opposed to a wine that 
I might love as well, but it just means so much more if you've got someone yeah. who's regaining you. Because you've got the story in your head. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's the experience. It sense, isn't it? How those supply visits can build loyalty. But I think we all talk about provenance on evenings that actually ready meals get larger and larger and larger and no one really cares about the provenance of their chicken in those ready meals. And I, I find that a really interesting mm. dilemma facing supermarkets because we only use free range in our own ready meals and yet that isn't free range in, in most ready meals. It's not free range. No one knows about the provenance and those ready meal categories get larger and larger and larger. So I think sometimes we can delude ourselves mm. about how interested people are in provenance and it's definitely a, a, a large section of the population rather there's a huge amount of people that just want yeah. a ready meal convenience, convenience uh, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think when you look at any supermarket you just see how much more diversified that ready meal range yeah. the ranges are becoming larger and larger and larger and larger um, so I sometimes think a little note of caution about yeah. how people really care about provenance but they do and we're really careful to make sure that in our own label products whether it's cheese, ready meals, whatever, mm. and if it's a Waitrose own label, it has the same standards as the counters and, and this sort of open food. Um, it comes from the same place. You know. But you are sort of a supermarket set apart, aren't you? <laughs> you can say that. Mm. <laughs> it depends which category you're operating in. I mean, Aldi and Little, they're operating in a price market. I mm. don't think provenance particularly comes into it, but they are actually really good at provenance. Mm -hmm. And then you get convenience, which is your Amazon and your deliveries. But uh, farm shops and delis particularly, and mm. I'd say experience. And that's I, think that's why they choose to come to I think that's why they choose to come to us, yeah. isn't it? They're looking for something slightly yeah. different from the customers. We now move on to an area of discussion that I'm particularly interested as a member of food retail and hospitality. Uh, careers, opportunities for people and how to further their career and how these big companies and small companies look to improve the life and the ability of their staff. We start with Simon Thompson. Last two or three years, we've really kicked, we've got right into the whole apprenticeship thing, and and that's been a, a massive success. Surprisingly, some people who've been working with us for an awful long time choosing to do it as well, and just wanting that sort of uh, that, that time to, to evaluate what they're doing, and maybe maybe taking seriously what they're doing. Maybe you know, because like I say it's not necessarily an industry people go out to, but it's uh, that's the number for us. We we've, we've got to get people mm. considering it, and we've got to show them that there is a career. I think the industry has to, to be fair, because we all, we, we all probably have the same struggles of, of hanging on to good people and trying to inspire them and do enough with them and, and send them on all the trips and do all that good things. So I think, you know, w the, the industry massively needs to, but I do think it's more in vogue than it ever has been, for yeah. sure, you know, I think, um, and it's a transferable skill and you go away with fantastic knowledge, which in your day-to-day -day is, you know, you can be at the dinner party, you can be the one saying, well, actually, that's, you know, mm. the, the flavour notes of that, why, you know, and, and I think that's not lost on the generations coming through. It really is a life skill, food. I also think communication skills are disappearing. So mm. everybody's coming out with a degree, but communication skills, mm. that's what's going to pay, you know, in the future. It's people that can talk to people yeah, and absolutely. get the point across. Is it harder for you to retain staff and give that m more of a career feel because you're in a more rural environment? Is it, or does it make it up? It's, I mean, presumably, every, you know, lots of people want, would want to work here, but whereas in your situation, it's yeah. I mean, we're not really we're not really in a rural location. We're just set aside Pontypridd, mm. and uh, you know, it's not the nicest area in the world. It's a bit more full Monty. Then all creatures great and small. <laughs> 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 That's brilliant. And I think, I think the two things to say is skill set. So if we advertise for a butcher, I'll probably get four people apply, of which one I'll give a job. 
if I if I advertise for a shop member, I'll probably get 90 to apply. Yeah, but you're going to give me communication skills. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> 100 grand a year, Blue. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, to be fair, that's what we're doing. When we get good members of staff, one, two yeah. year in, we're really, you know, we're upscaling the pay, looking after them. Yeah. And it's also training. You know. And it's also, it's a cheap cost, isn't it? You, you know, staff yeah. turnover is an incredibly expensive cost. Yeah. I go on about it the whole time. Have you any idea how much it costs to hire someone, train someone, induct someone? Yeah. We need to hold on to our people. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is my you know, mantra for the last two years, particularly post-Brexit, when there hasn't been that flood of staff coming into London. And I, I think going back to what you said, is it easier? Some people want to work in speciality food. Some people want to come and work on a cheese counter. Some want to be surrounded by that. And, you know, I'm really clear that we need to give our people a career path. So we have a policy of really only promoting from within. Um, and and one of the reasons I say we need to open more stores is that we need to promote managers because that's that's what they ultimately want to do. Um, but yeah, I think to retain people is is one of our greatest challenges, and and how yeah. we incentivise them. So we've just introduced gym membership recently, private healthcare. You know, for what started as a little company, we started something to yourself. All these things that we have to consider. What package do we have to give yeah. give them to keep them? Now, and it's it's actually it's a cheap cost. Yeah, but MG saying, "Ooh, but it's going to cost this," and I said, "Have you any idea how expensive it is <laughs> for us to attract someone, keep them, and then you know keep them after two years?" I said, "It's a cheap cost." I said, "We're going to do it for everybody," um, and there are some limitations to who can have it and things, but but it's an incentive for them to stay with us. I think we we have you know some similar challenges. I think we're helped by our business model, so we're a co-owned business. So the the partners own the business. We're all co-owners in the business. And three months in, if you've you know shown your merits and you're okay and you can do what you said you could do, then you become a co-owner in the business. And that certainly helps where we have partners who've joined us from private businesses that mm. they've owned themselves. So a lot of our butchers and fishmongers in our counters have probably grown up in the industry, been an apprentice to their father or grandfather, and have been a butcher since they were you know knee high to a grasshopper. Um, and they enjoy that they can still work in the industry. They don't have the, the pressure and stress of the sort of commercial side of running their mm. own shop. Um, but they do still feel like a, an owner of, of that particular part of the business because we try and give them, you know, within a framework, as much autonomy as we can with, with, that, mm. with that product and, and with those customers. And it's, it's really the challenge for us is to get them to accept that autonomy and, and seize it with both hands and go for it because perhaps you know in between their own business and us they've been to a different supermarket or business where there hasn't been that autonomy so they've sort of become a little bit robotic and trying to get them to be more creative again is, is quite challenging mm. both on an inter, mm -hmm. interpersonal you know sort of saying to them you know we, one of our values is be yourself always and trying to get people to really be themselves at work yeah. And bring their personality through. It's quite difficult because they go into sort of work mode and stop yeah. doing that. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. It's okay to be a little yeah. bit, you know, a little bit banter around the meat count is always a good thing. Um, so, so we're trying to encourage that much Confidence more. Confidence is a big thing, and I think yeah. for generations coming through, customer expectation is so high. Mm. <laughs> they yeah. will tell you what they feel, you know, and if you get it wrong. So we're kicking off a whole, a whole piece around. It's nothing to do with KPIs, nothing to do with sales, not, you know, nothing really to do with the product. Let's say it's more about actually just that training key areas and that, that customer facing and that communication piece because mm. it isn't innate in a lot of people these days and they mm. do come through and they could they might have had it like you say some experiences where mm. they their confidence or they they weren't asked to do that and all of a sudden they are and it feels mm. sort of 
feels like public speaking when it's actually mm. you're just mm. co conversing yeah, across the counter. We're, we're, we're having to work hard on both product knowledge, getting them committed to the product and, and, and exposed to the product, but also giving them the tools to, to be in front of customers these days, where customers can be a bit more exacting. You know? 90% of the places you go these days, and I don't mean food shops, you just get processed. I mean, oh, terrible. The petrol station, yeah. you go in and regularly spend £100. If yeah. they even speak to you, you're looking <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh, I don't even bother with that. I just do the paying. <laughs> yeah. It's such an unpleasant experience. Yeah. I don't even go where I can pay by a car. The absolute worst one around us is City World. It is horrendous. It's uh, buy thing. online. I just get stressed every time I go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Buy your tickets online. I'll sell me my popcorn and my coffee. It's yeah. so interesting. Actually, you picking up online there is interesting because we sell cheese online and to translate the experience that people mm. have in our shop to the online thing is one of our biggest challenges because we in the shop we rely so heavily I can do it. Can but I, I sort of explained to my guys that we're an antidote to Amazon and I haven't got a problem with Amazon yeah. at all I'm probably one of their biggest users I hate going to other shops that aren't my own I, I mean I genuinely, I genuinely, <laughs> I genuinely do I love my stores and I love the guys that work in them and chitty 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 I really love how they're engaging with the customers and I say we're just human beings you know, we just, what do other people, what do human beings like? They like chatting to other human beings. And I say, okay, imagine we were the local post office, the local pub, it's, hi, how are you? You've got to judge it. The customer's on the phone, you can't you can't do it. But, you know, they're just human beings. And I say to Michael, no, no, don't be scared of them. But I, I, we don't particularly, we do talk about customers, but we don't particularly talk about customers. I just said they're people shopping in our stores mm -hmm. and they want to be acknowledged. What, what is the yeah. fundamental thing that hum, human beings want? They want to be acknowledged. Exactly that. When I go yeah. into either a John Lewis or a Waitrose, I'm always like, yeah, but they service. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's actually incredible, really. Whereas I go into an Asda and I'm ready to slip my throat before I've even left the store because it's, it's just non-existent. You know, and they make you queue forever and the rest of it. So I love going around and smile, but I, I am always struck by how actually it is pretty, particularly in the John Lewis stores. And I think it's, it's, it's what you said about the sort of um, the village feel and the community feel. A lot of our, our stores actually are in sort of rural locations, sort of Middle England, I call it, you know, that sort of space, um, as opposed to in, in towns and, and big cities. We are there as well. But it's the you know the, the the shops that we have in sort of Hereford or Poundbury or Lincoln that you sort of you, you get that sort of feel. Well, my um, mother and they know the community. My right? mother tripped over outside a Waitrose, great big bang on the head. They were amazing. The paramedics came there, and then the local branch sent her a bunch of flowers to say, you know, we're so sorry. We hope you're okay. She is a shopper for life. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there is no way she's going anywhere else. Our partners live in those communities as well. So it's about our own people as well as our customers, and our own people are our customers. Mm. So it, it, it really is that sort of, it's a big business that feels like a small business to me, yeah, which, is, which is great. And when I hear stories like that, you sort of think, oh, good, mm. <laughs> yeah, we're, doing it. we're doing the right thing. Moving on now to food service within a retail environment, we hear from Rob Copley. I think if you're good at what you do, or you've got something unique, food service is not required, although it does help up thought, mm. but you don't need it. So we have a kitchen, yes. um, which does help us with the efficient use of fresh stock. So um, it reduces our wastage because we can put things through, we make quiches, we mm. make salads, that kind of thing. So um, we don't rely on it uh, in terms of another sort mm. of uh, lime sales, but we, in terms of having stuff in the shop, it, it's an efficient use of some of our stock. I've got takeaway coffee machines mm -hmm. in two stores. and. Uh, we had one in Wimbledon and I took it out, I couldn't bear it. And um, 
they'd sit outside with the sandwich. I mean, it has VAT implications for us with sandwiches and things anyway, but not that big. But they'd sit outside for like three hours. And then just recently in the Parkgate shop, we put in, um, with, there'd been a restaurant next to us that served coffee and nobody, um, it closed down and everybody was asking for takeaway coffee or they wanted to sit and have a, so I relented and put in two tables and six stalls and I just hated it. And, and um, the minute I could, I went, get them out. Oh, customers are asking for them. I said, they sit there with their croissants, they make the floor dirty, we can't access the goods. And I think if we'd given a third of the store and done it well, it might not have offended me so much. Well, it doesn't look very yeah, nice. It's got to be all in. Yeah. It's we, all we've in. Tried the you can't fake it. Mm. Um, and we found it exactly your word compromise. It mm. was a compromise then on what we, of our core business, yeah. of doing it really well because actually it's very time consuming to make it uh, a cup of coffee so yes there might be a great margin on that cup of coffee mm. but it's taken your staff away from uh, the, mm. the, the selling of the cheese and so mm. we we took it out after six months and to the to regular the people who were doing it regularly they were very disappointed but it freed up staff time back to go back to the cheese the, ex the experiential event is just the wonderful edit of product it's the great people serving you. You, know, you don't really need to layer in the hospitality. Mm -hmm. A lot of people these days in some of the supermarkets have, some successfully, some not, layered in hospitality. Because A, it's convenient and it gives people to say, well, we can go into the shop and we have something to eat. You can, you can drive a little bit of a provenance messaging and say, well, look, you know, it is kind of restaurant savvy sort of thing. But it is, it's not a cheap thing to do. It is a, it's, it's more technical. You are then looking at people, you've got to hire people with expertise, experience, skill sets, which are hard to find. So it layers in real complexity, and I think you, you've got to be, you have to be all in. There are people who maybe open a, a food store, a deli, and then try and get hospitality, and it is hard. Because particularly for me, butchers for us is that we have three butchers, and when we're down to two, it's tough. Mm -hmm. From a roaching point, we're trying to find the third one and get them embedded and get in it, and that, so that's a pocket for me. I mean, we've got critical mass and chefs, so we can cover most things, and if we have, we're, we're missing one or two, you know, we find, I'm missing a butcher, the world knows about it, and I'm down there and you know, we have chefs going in doing that for a day because we, we you know, what else do you do? So, you know, the skill thing, or actually, you know, we all have that in our businesses and I think we probably all have to, you know, you say you've got a production kitchen, it's all, you need to measure what you're putting in, how much skill and is it sustainable against what your business is trying to do? And I think a lot of businesses make a mistake when we're trying to drop in that experiential piece, not understanding actually the undertaking that to do it sustainably and do it well it's probably going to hurt them and you've also have to be careful of the dwell time because it doesn't necessarily mean the spending mark it just no. means the spending longer on the premises it's not an issue to you here but you know yeah, no, if, somebody, if somebody's going to fill your car park up for two hours you need to be getting <laughs> yeah. some let me tell you yeah. it's, it's definitely an issue in london you're <laughs> sitting there with a the coffee and you're paying your, you know the rents and the rates that you yeah. are paying it's definitely an issue yeah. so what people want in london more than anything else is a seat and a toilet, mm -hmm. and some Wi-Fi, and a socket to charge their laptop. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So third within London, third spacing is 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 a massive massive deal. And when I got to Waitrose, the first thing you know, with my Pret hat still half on my head, the first thing I I, I observed when I went into Waitrose cafes are there are no sockets. Mm. There are no sockets anywhere. There's the Wi-Fi's off. What's going mm. on? There's no. You're not going to have people coming in here. And, and having breakfast and lunch because there are no sockets. Mm. I was quite frantic about it, so we have started doing that now. And, and I get your point about you need to make your, your seats earn money for you, but there's something about the type of seat that you put in that helps with that. And if you go into Pret, 
in sort of St Martin's Lane or just at, you know within Soho, you'll notice the seats get harder and more uncomfortable mm-hmm. the higher density the tourists are because people can't sit on it for that long. So you can manage those expectations. Um, but the, 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 the waitress customer really expects a cafe. And what we see where we've um, maybe opened a branch or put a cafe into a branch that's in relatively short drive proximity from a branch without a cafe, they will migrate to the one with the cafe mm. um, because they want to make it a bit more of a trip. Um, a bit, particularly when it's a bigger branch that's opened mm. and it might have a bigger range of, of sort of homewares rather than just the food offer, they will go and browse and sort of go and have breakfast and then do their shopping. I mean, for us, it's the frequency. Restaurants bring frequencies to us because in an area like this, there is a, there's a local mm. residential and, and worker force that, um, you know, we, as I was going to say, you know, we, were, we were 40% domestic, 60% tourism when we got to six years ago. That's flipped now. So it's now 60% domestic. 40% tourism, and we've doubled the business. So it's not like we've just shifted. It is, mm. and it has been that right. drive to make sure that Fortnum's is in the now, in the relevant, in the local area. And the restaurants for us play that part. And to be fair, you're absolutely right. That linger, you know, it needs it needs managing, and you know we don't put spikes in the seat. I mean, my team, my team, let the other seats. Don't worry about you know. But mm. it, it, for us, it breeds that frequency, and I think that has been a big part of us. And it becomes that. It's that habitual thing, and I say people coming in for lunch, they pass it downstairs. You know, you front of mind there, and they're walking past, they see the meat counter, and it. Because for us, what we don't want to be is this fortress. fortress. It's an interesting point that about the myth of, of the cost, and particularly farm shops have had this sort of illusion that they are more expensive places to go and shop, which actually a lot of the time it isn't true. Uh, I've seen these sort of blackboards in farm shops where they've got this sort of. Um, vegetable comparison in price between different supermarkets and the farm shop, and you know, often and certainly it's, meat can be more. Yeah, farm shops are perceived to be expensive, and a lot of it is because we do carry a lot of luxury goods. Mm. You know, we haven't got a fifty-nine pence jar of jam. A jar of jam is two pounds seventy because it's hand stirred by Betty down the road, and it's raspberries from that farm. And you know that automatically makes them more expensive, and that's what people's perception are. Mm. But when you come down to your milk and your cabbage and your cauliflower and your mints, you're often cheaper. Yeah. And it, it's it's just. It's all about the relative value of a chicken as well. So there's a chicken three pound, there's a chicken yeah, fifty pound. We like can't afford to do the little and Aldi adverts on telly. This yeah, is the way it shows. It's, it's it. kind of. I think it's different. I remember being very very young actually, and going with my father to a, a farm shop just outside mm. Leeds. And he bought half a lamb. I mean, it literally was half. I was yeah. quite shocked as a child that there was that he was carrying on his shoulder. And, and my dad could deal with it and went home and chopped it all into its various pieces and half went in the freezer and some went to next door and all that kind of thing because that was the cheapest yeah. way to, to buy it. Yeah, right. um, and, and I'm fairly sure if he'd asked the guy there, he would have portioned it all up for him as well. You know, so I think that when you're buying, certainly for me, I think when I'm buying it like that, it should be a lot cheaper. Than when you put a load of we still do it. I mean, we've got yeah. a whole lamb and half a pig for sale now. And yeah. it, it's, it's at a decent price. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we have them stand there while we butcher it in front yeah. of them. Exactly how big do you want it? And I think that, 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 that the interesting thing, I, and I've talked to our meat counterpartners about this quite a lot, it's about then, do people know what to do with that product? Because there wouldn't have been an inch of that lamb would have gone to waste. Mm. You know, my dad would have eaten the brain and everything, it, yeah. the, whole, the whole animal. So I, I talk to partners a lot about, you know, when I stand in front of our meat counter, my grandmother would have known how to cook everything on that counter without looking at any recipe book or even, you know, she would have just known. My mum probably 50%, 
me probably 40% and a bit of googling a few things. My daughter, I, I'm not sure where she will be, whether, whether she'll be the same as me or worse or more because of the prevalence of I think the difference is they don't see them products these days and mm. it's not people don't buy them. They get exported to China because that'll pay more for it. Yeah. You know, our waste is a delicacy over there. Mm. It's, uh, I mean, so, I spend so, so we work a lot on, you know, so, so how do you cook skate wing? How do you cook liver? How do you cook oxtail? You know, mm. Talking to people about the cuts that they shy away from because it's not as easy as putting a steak on a grill and, and, and sort of standing back and probing it. And <laughs> they're scared of the products that look more difficult. And now sustainability and the use of plastics and packaging in food retail. Rob Copley. I think one thing farm shops can do is change really quickly. And, you know, packaging has come to the forefront at the moment. And the first or second change is quite easy. You know, you just swap plastic for paper and things like that. But, and you get rid of your straws and you put paper straws in. But getting down the line, it's harder then. You know, and then you've got to educate customers. So they're bringing in their own boxes and we're doing much more of the loose products. But likewise, people, once you change to there, people expect it to be cheaper, and it's not. There's a cost to getting rid of plastic. And I think that's the message that you guys need to start and get across, is getting rid of packaging is going to cost you money. Yeah. And it's supply chain for us, you know, no matter what we yeah. do, it's, trying, it's the ripple effect of trying to get, and then you're influencing smaller businesses, which you, you can't just, you know, you need to be conscientious about leaning on them and putting in sort of fixed fixed dates about things because again there's a cost to them and they probably bought bulk because it's tried to you know so it's 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 not it's not an easy thing it's been really interesting with the pyo strawberries this year because i bought three years worth of plastic punnets <laughs> and this is like my last year of them and customers going why are you still on plastic and i said look i'm, I'm, I'm almost there. there i'm almost there i need to They're use quite it right. yeah because yeah. so, that would be uh, more wasteful yeah. yeah, but it's, it's for every customer I ask, there's probably 10 that don't say a word and just say they're still using plastic punnets. Yeah. So maybe we should, I'm thinking now we maybe should have put a sign up, but... Uh. But you're right, supply, one of the biggest things for us is we've made all these easy swaps, as you're saying, this paper, that paper. For us, it's the receiving of um, like fresh cheese that kind of from our suppliers. It's all in plastic, all with the um, ice yeah. At the moment, it's the cost must, it's prohibitive for yeah. um, sending that and keeping it cool um, and so we're just not seeing the there's an organic process to it I mean I see, see the chefs you know again when the, the guys receiving the goods and the chefs you know they you know, again it's the younger generation they're sort of they're on saying oh, John what are you doing you've sent me this again and it's in this you know and so there's a, there's an organic there where they are just you know just from not because the customer doesn't see that what it comes, but they're saying that doesn't feel great can we not do this so it, it'll take it's just taking time I mean the great thing the movement is there the momentum is there I think public's perception of that momentum to your point, it's like, why are you still doing that? Well, it's, you know, there is a, because it'd be also pretty wasteful, just you've got all that plastic, what are you going to do? You're just going to, mm. you're going to dump it, you know, so it's kind of, it, it, yeah. is, uh, it is a challenge. I mean, we're all on it, of course. Well, it's trying to work out what's best. I mean, we've just been looking at carrier bags, which I'm sure you guys have spent far more than us looking at, but there isn't an alternative out there. The alternative is getting the customers to reuse them. Mm, yeah. That's the best solution. Uh, you know, paper bags yeah. just take that's too much space. Biodegradable bags aren't actually biodegradable. Mm. Yeah. And they've got to have function as well. Some of those solutions, the, the greener solutions, don't serve a purpose mm. or their purpose, and therefore that becomes wasteful yeah. again. And I, but I also think that the statistics on that you've got to use a cotton bag 171 times for it to become carbon neutral and, and no one uses those cotton yeah. bags 171 times so I think it is about because we have taken the decision our bags are oh, but we all know they don't really buy the grade 
that we took, and everyone changed paper, I went, no, paper's got to be used five times. I said for it to be uh, neutral, and I said no one uses a bag five times, and they get wet in the in the London weather, and people ask them to be double bag because they don't trust their bottle of wine and everything in them, and the cost just keeps escalating in terms of the planet. So we say to people, bring back a Bailey and Sage bag, and we'll give you ten p off your shopping. Bring back, bring your own bag, and give you five p off your shopping. So I think it is about reuse. It's not necessarily about. Um, Swapping over, it's about saying reuse, reuse, reuse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we've just moved to milk um, glass bottles for milk, and they get 10p back when they bring the, uh, the milk bottle back. Yeah. So I think it is encouraging reuse rather than it's it is. Driving the behaviours, isn't it? Yes, it is sure, absolutely. Yeah. Rather than just yeah. saying, oh well, we've swapped it out. And I'm somewhat cynical about you know we have some people. Was it you that said you have one customer that complains and then ten that don't complain? Yeah, I mean, th there are, most people just want convenience, I, I, yeah. I think, really. Um, and we offer various bags, um, and now we ask, do you need, we don't say want, we used to say, would you like a bag? Now we say, do you need a bag today? I think the interesting thing has been our trial in Oxford, where we've, um, for, for a 12-week period, you know, gone as, as far as we possibly could um, with removing packaging from mm. our veg and, and produce sections, our mm. counters, and some of our cereals and dry products, um, and, and beer and wine. Um, and we've also offered in there a, a box service. So people have sort of shied away from, you know, the, the sort of traditional supermarket thing of stacking the empty crisp boxes and apple boxes at the end of the aisle for you to take with mm. your shopping in. Mm -hmm. um, and we still do that if people ask for, you know, a, a strong box, we nip out the back and get one. Mm. Um, but we otherwise it goes off and is recycled. But we've we've offered them a, a sort of a, a cleaner um, plastic box to take their shopping home in that they can sit in the bottom of their trolley, do their quick check using the gun, put all the shopping straight into the plastic box, bring it back next time and use it again. And that's had some quite good traction. Um, and if they forget their box, they can rent one from us. And, and yeah, so, so that's well received. I don't when you get again when you go in the con you go to Spain and you just you, you, there's, do you want a box and you get a box. And you, mm. that's, Convenient to go yeah. to back the car and the next, you know, what it's kind of uh, just get it, it's just, just things like Sainsbury's did it years ago. I remember probably 15 years ago, you could get these, you know, blue with the orange handle off your Well, no, I'm talking about boxes. just you know, they're just recycling a box they've had from a supply. Yeah, you could yeah. argue that was a good thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested, we talked earlier on briefly about the re bringing in your own thing, carton, carrier, whatever, Tupperware. Uh -huh. It's a bit of a dull question, this, but I, I, I'm, I'm interested. Where, where's the sort of health and safety on that? Because if you bring in a bottle that's contaminated, mm -hmm. fill up your milk, go home when you're ill, that's, that's going to be a minefield, I spoke it? to my insurance about this, and it was quite a simple conversation. Okay. <laughs> it sits with them. So okay. It's, it's not your problem. And the and the EHO was on board with that. Yeah. As well. Yeah, yeah but I'm talking it's simple telephone conversations. No, we yeah. have. We we it is. I mean, we have a technical team here, and we have somebody, and it, it's been something we we really we and we are pushing it through. To your point, I think it's going to be very interesting in the future to see who wins. Mm. Is the health and safety police going to win, or is the or is this kind of is, is the green I, lobby? I hope to think yeah. it's sustainability because that's yeah. the common sense side of it because. Yeah. You you are you're absolutely right. We're now I mean if I ask the technical team they get they get all very hot and sweaty. Yeah. And they start worrying about swabbing it when it's in and you know, do we have to take one off them and if it's one of ours that we've got these Welsh Welsh rabbits, which is Welsh rabbit mix which you, you simply can put on in a yeah. jar. And I got to the point where I kind of quite quite fond of Welsh rabbits. So kept buying them myself and then I was like, What are you gonna do with these jars? And I was like, Can I bring them back in? And then the technical team said, You can but 
tiny chips and there's a bag of tea. And just, yeah. you, always, you, you literally get tied up in knots. And I think that has to, that point there, is that something's got to be done there to allow, to un, unravel yeah. the ability for all of us to do probably what's the common sense of thing that. And I must say, the containers I've seen coming in, they're not an issue at all. You mm. know, it, it took away as your ideal box. But, but a company uh, like those, if somebody brought something in that was theirs, and they hadn't cleaned it correctly, mm. and they took our shepherd's pie away in that, took it home, cooked it, had an alleged food poisoning, mm. came back to us and said I was unwell, which is quite fine. We were saying, well, was it? Was, was, your, was your container clean? Yeah. What was the journey of the container when you brought it in? You know, where it, and all it does, it, what it does, it just opens up a real grey area. And finally, what do the members of our panel think is the future of fine food retail? I think we'll go uh, greater and greater, greater and greater down the province route. You know, we'll have more specialty melons, more specialty strawberries. Um, I think we'll go less meat, definitely. We'll go more plant-based. Um, maybe we'll introduce, instead of buying in juices, maybe we'll put juice bars into the stores where you can come and I'm a bit worried it's a you know a variation of my sandwich bar, but I think we'll make things truer to the ingredients for the customers. We're going to experiment with cashless in one store. We take virtually no money in cash across the business now. So um, next month we're going cashless in one store to see the impact of that. Um, and I think in the very, very near term, it, it's, you know, will we be buying from Europe or will we be buying from elsewhere? Or will we buy more UK? And I'm guessing it's going to be combination of those two? I think it is around the experience that people have coming into the shop. Um, it's not just an opportunity to buy the product, it's to you know, dive into that world of, the, of the, the cheese or the meat or whatever, they've come into the shop and to learn, to discover, to taste, to explore and to enjoy and so I think it will go uh, m more heavily towards it. I mean it already is but I think it will continue down that direction. I think that means the atmosphere and the um, the knowledge in the team has to be there to, uh, to back up uh, that experience that people will enjoy and also be prepared to pay for when they come in store. I think British cheese is just on the up and um, we're now getting so many people so excited about British cheese. So I think farm shops need to stay in the experience market so all you guys are trying to get closer and closer to the producer and train your staff. In most farm shop cases they are the producer of something and the stuff that they're not producing, it's often the best mate that's eight mile down the road and they can mm. talk about Ted and his limousines and what cut of meat it is. Uh, you know, personally, education, experience and entertainment, taking people out into the strawberry field, doing old-fashioned strawberries in the ground, old-fashioned varieties that taste sweeter, and not, not being the nasty farmer, get off my land, but get yourself around there, try them before you buy them, you know, eat as many as you like while you're here. And, and you can follow that through lots of crops. There's probably not the engagement with the animals, but the butcher can get the engagement about which cuts of meat they're eating. And, uh, you know, that's what we do really, really well. I think for us it's about providing, you know, continuing to provide differentiated product to people who have a limited time in their lives to do the shopping and need to come and get certain things they shouldn't not be able to get other things and differentiated things at the same time. So in the same way that you, you may have other products because they're coming for meat or something, yeah, I, think, I think for us, you know, whilst you're there for your cornflakes and your baked beans, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have a great selection of cheese, a great selection of olives, a, you know, a great selection of fish to shop from. Um, and, and I think that um, we just need to provide the widest possible 
you know, opportunity of taste for our customers mm. um, at a really high level of quality and the sort of perceived safety and, and um, uh, just doing right that goes with that. I think that's, that's something that's really important to us as co-owners because you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that in your own business, so why would you do it in a, in a bigger business that there are lots of co-owners in? Not that this is a plan, this is probably a personal thought, but I think where we can use our own producers to have that, that sort of tie-up. So, so for instance, we use our own, we've got our own farm down in Leckford near Andover, Stockbridge, that sort of area. And we, in, in shops um, relatively close to Leckford, we sell our own farm produce and our waitroses. Um, you know, from vinegar to mushrooms to wine to the flax that goes in John Lewis mattresses. We, we'll continue, you know, as with our heritage, this the, the experiential, that moment of, of occasion coming to the store, the conviviality over the counter, the provenance, you know, and, and all of that. I mean, I think, you know, that for me, I mean, high end, what we try and do is it's about curation of great product, which is a problem we're all, we're all doing, and I guess it's having the team turn on to that. Will we keep giving space over to, to, to linger? Will we, you know, we've always done that, and I'd like to think we are on the cusp of, you know, on the head of that curve of really getting back into those things. I think we haven't had to do a big reverse. Mm. It's always been there. We'll dial it up. But certainly that closeness to the produce and the supply chain is going to be key. And, you know, we, we would, you know, I would love to have for, for Fortums to have its own, um, of its own wares to sell that we wear it's really from from field field to shop floor i think for a lot of reasons big reason for me is the team as well you know it's that to what we talked earlier about hanging on to our teams giving them a career path well i mean i think it's a very smart move to get in your teams and actually showing them that stuff it's that end-to-end -end scenario and the career path and it probably sends you just turned me on to waitress more than than I was when I walked in, even though I'm not, I'm quite quite a fan anyway of knowing that, because I think that is, you know, it's where it's at. Mm. It's where it's at for all of us. Produce is emotive. Mm. Food is emotive, that's the difference we talked about. It's the human, but people talk about mm. experiential. Experiential is human beings being involved somewhere in the transaction. Mm. Um, so we, we will continue to do that. So there we are. Thanks again to Fulton and Mason for hosting us uh, in their wonderfully air-conditioned boardroom on the hottest day of ever. Um, if you want to know more about some of the really interesting topics that we covered in the podcast, check out Fine Food Digest's September issue and there will be lots of wonderful photographs as well, as well taken by the excellent Sam Pelly, who you probably heard clicking away in the background uh, during that recording. Um, but yes, check out Fine Food Digest's September issue and then coming up from the fine food podcast uh, we will be back to cheese i can't wait the fine food podcast is produced by Salomon and michael lane of fine food digest it's edited and presented by me sam wilkin if you want to know more about the guild of fine food go to gff.co.uk and check out Salomon sam on twitter and instagram